Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, Your Book Inspector, and this week's guest is Nikesh Shukla, the author, broadcaster and essayist. His third novel, The One Who Wrote Destiny, was published to great acclaim by Atlantic Books this spring. It's a story about love, pain and stand-up comedy. Nikesh is the creator and editor of the best-selling essay collection, The Good Immigrant, published by Unbound, which features essays from 21 writers of colour discussing race and immigration in the UK. He lives in Bristol, but it was tricky to make a date to see his bookshelves, so he told us all about them during a chat in London. It's worth mentioning that we recorded this conversation several months ago, so many of the projects Nikesh talks about are now out and available to buy. Think of this as a chance to enjoy some small-scale time travel. I am here in our special interrogation chambers um, with Nikesh Shukla. What do you remember reading when you were little that you had to be quite secretive about? Did you do much reading under the covers or taking things from the library or, or buying books that your family would not have approved of? Yeah, um, so like my weird story, like my parents didn't really read to me as a kid. I don't really, I don't remember there being a lot of kids books in our house, if any, but my mum was really good about taking us to the library. Um, from the age of like three till maybe I think it may have only have been a year or maybe two years but I my entire family lived in one house and so I shared this is I don't know if I should admit this it's sort of awful I as a three-year-old shared a bedroom with my dad's 16 year old brother and he was at college and studying and like I would want to go to sleep and he would want to study and we had a really fractious relationship which we still do to this day but it's because we shared the tiniest room and he was a teenager and I was a child and he was your uncle but it was more like a relationship with brothers yeah yeah it was really odd Um, and then when they moved out when he moved out like and I had my own room um, my mum was always really good about taking me and my sister to the library she always thought buying books was um, was a waste of money uh, when you had access to the library so we spent a lot of time in libraries and the one thing that my mum never like censored us or like was worried about was whether we were reading so I was like I tried to read quite a bit of punishment when I was like 13 years old and what have you but um wow. how did you find it did you finish it I gave up I didn't get it I really didn't get it um 
so I, I kind of found myself reading a lot of stuff like way before I should have read them or knew really knew what they were about. So like I remember obsessing about Adrian Mole when I was like eight years old, um, not really getting a lot of the stuff that was in it um, and not really getting that. It was a book that I guess like having been a 13 mm. year, and a three quarters year old, you then read it. You don't read it at 13 and three quarters. Because I suppose it's almost like YA fiction for adults, isn't it? Yeah. That everybody connects with that. But because obviously Sue Townsend is, I think, one of the funniest writers yeah. that has ever existed. Um, but the thing about that book, and like I had, like I would be able to freely get that book and Teenage Health Freak and like the Paul Zindel books. Um, out of the library without worrying and then like I'd lend them to my mates because their parents were a bit bit hotter on what they should should and shouldn't be reading um, so you were running the semi-legal lending library yeah, maybe, I don't know um, but like the one book that I got from the library that had the biggest impact on me was um, so I saw the advert for the BBC adaptation of the Buddha of Suburbia and I was like wow there's a brown guy who can I swear yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a brown guy who's like <laughs> fucking and like taking loads of drugs and listening to rock and roll and and having sex with everybody yeah this looks amazing (laughs) um but i knew because there was one tv in the house because it was the 1980s and 90s like um my parents would watch that they would always watch the nine o'clock news i think it was on at nine o'clock and i just knew they weren't gonna let me watch the buddha of suburbia but i from the advert i gleaned that it was a it was based on the books i was like they don't care if I get out of the library because that's just reading. So I got out of the library and um, I, re- I really remember reading that first line, my name is Kareem Amir and I'm an Englishman through and through, almost. And that one word, almost, was like, it was like the first time I felt I'd felt seen as a, like a weird teenage brown kid who went to a predominantly white school. And How old were you? Like 14, 15, I think. And like that's, Part of why I think it's really important that people feel represented is that I want everyone to have that bit of suburbia moment mm-hmm. where they read a story and they resonate. That story resonates with them so much that they don't feel weird or they don't feel alone or they don't feel isolated. Um, or they read that story and they see um, the perspective of someone else who's like living a completely different life to them and they can find their universality in that as well. So. Um, that book is really important to me, and I guess if my mum had known that I'd read it at the time, then she probably would have. Maybe she would have been like, maybe don't read that. Is that a book you'd like to share with your own children when they're ready? Presumably not now, or do you think it's something that you hope they find for themselves? I hope they find their better of suburbia because there's no, you, you know, when you like, I love this so much, you have to read it. You will love it as much as I do, and then you read it and you go, it's all right. Like, that's how I would, that's how I fear, like, you know, when something gets overhyped, when someone tells you this is the most important mm. book in my life and it will be the most important book in your life, that's a lot of pressure. It It's so heavily depends on when you come to these things as well that they really resonate. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, being an ambitious reader and getting books out and not finishing them. In your house, do you have any classics on your shelf that sort of look good, but perhaps you haven't got to the end of? Or are there any books that, again, you know, popular opinion or other people's opinion says this is great, but you just not really had that moment of connection? I'm really lucky to get books, and like I've got a, I'm judging the Folio Prize at the moment, so I've got a post Folio Prize reading 
thing that of books that I really must get through. But so like the first part of your question, I'm really badly read when it comes to the canon and to classics. I I read a lot of comics and a lot of uh, actually that's comics was probably the thing that my the comics are the thing that my parents really hated me reading. They thought they were a waste of money and they thought they were melting my brain. Like little did they know that comics would be like or like those characters would be like the most lucrative characters in the world. But which comics did you read? Spider Man. I was obsessed with Spider Man growing up and Daredevil and Batman. Um, so, but I've not read that many classics, and I think I've tried. So, like, I I asked for Bleak House one Christmas, and like, I read a page of it, and I didn't really get into it. Um, and in terms of like books that people love that I really hate, like. I can't stand Jonathan Franzen. I really hate his stuff. I just find it smug. And, like, there is this, like... There's, there's two tropes of book that I really hate. One is, like, the great American novel where um, archetypal Donald Draper-esque man walks into a room, picks up a mug. Mug reminds him of his childhood. We have 70 pages of childhood reminiscences. <laughs> He, the mug falls and smashes to the ground. He's then sad for 400 pages. Um, and then you have the other trope, which is like sad, middle-aged, creative writing professor um, has sex with his impossibly attractive younger student and then is a bit sad for another 400 pages. Like, and those, like, Finkler question or Zoo Time or whatever it was, that won the Booker, didn't it? And um, Freedom, everyone loved Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, but I couldn't bear it. just read it and I thought, these people are awful. I tried and I kept dropping off. It's awful. Um, and it's not, does it, it doesn't tell me anything about America. It tells me a lot about some really privileged white it's people. It's a lot about Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. Um, Why do you think they have such an enormous appeal? Do you think it's the... You know, the confidence and audacity. There's the, what's the like, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. And <laughs> people just take them at their own estimation that you must be read my book. It's very good. I suppose it probably is quite good. I wonder if it's... Um, my, my friend Rosanna was telling me recently that, like, um, when men and women look at a job specification for a job, like, if, if a man can see if a man can tick off two of those things he'll apply for it but women more often than not will only apply if they can tick off like three quarters of mm. it that's how i feel about books I've, like male authors definitely have the audacity of like one person has told me this is the best thing ever therefore it's the best thing ever this is a person who says i refuse to write about black people because i don't have any black friends and it's like there's two wrong things with yes. that statement <laughs> Maybe maybe a third. But that's come up a lot when reading about the writing routines of men and women. And I'm generalising enormously, but I know that men tend to say, I will be in my study between 10 and 6 and I'm not to be disturbed and you must take the children away. And, you know, no one, if anybody comes, I will murder them and that will be legal because I've said so. But women... <laughs> tend to have to scribble in notebooks and people just burst on them, on them all the time say, oh, you're, you know, you're doing your writing, you're not doing anything important. I mean, how... Because I do think that anyone being a writer, it does take a lot of audacity to have that leap in your heart that believes, I think people will want to read what I have to say. When do you think that happened for you? Did you always write and connect with writing? Was there something that made you feel confident enough to, to really go for it? 
That's a good question. I, I don't know what, what, what the moment was. I, I know that I write to kind of figure stuff out. I'm not very good at talking things out. I need to write Doing it. all right here. Well, I'm just like maligning authors. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, yeah, so like my first novel is about me trying to like figure out what was going on for me as a teenager. My second novel is about me reconciling like a time in my life where I was grieving my mum and to avoid grieving my mum I spent a lot of time on social media my third novel is about me trying to like figure my family out and celebrate them like um so like I definitely write because I'm wrestling with something internal I'm like asking myself big questions of myself um and yeah I don't know what the point was where I was like other people need to read this but um, I guess you write enough stuff, you kind of start to think, well, it'd be nice to have readers for this. Mm. Yeah, we all like validation. I guess in a weird way, I, I suppose more specifically with The Good Immigrant, like the reason for doing The Good Immigrant was so people would have their Buddha of Suburbia moment um, that I had. Uh, and it's so brilliant to do that with so many different voices, I yeah, think. Yeah, because yeah. like, um, you know, my, my role in that was as a curator. Um, and you know it's interesting thinking about like if you'd had 10 other editors you would have had a 10 different like 10 different sets of essays in that book but because my tastes tend to lean towards funny the book ends up being funny it's true but i do think sometimes levity is lacking i think that humor is often the hardest thing to get right and it in a time when you know what the world needs now we need all the the joy we can lay our hands on and i think that critically sometimes I don't think this happened at all with The Good Immigrant. You know, I don't know a person who didn't sort of just adore it and think it was a wholesale fantastic book. But I know, you know, other writers I love, well, I suppose like P.G. Woodhouse is maybe an example of someone who, in a weird way, you know, he always wrote sort of the same story over and over and over again, but every time did it with such lightness and deftness. I guess mm. sort of Nancy Mitford as well. And they're writers who because they have written something that's almost so sort of digestible and it's something that you might pick up when you feel sad or, you know, it's not weighty like a Franzen. And I don't think they get the credit for the fact that something that is so easy to read is actually requires an awful lot of, you know, talent and effort to write. Or can wrestle with some really big things. Mm. Which, I think, you know, the good immigrant sort of certainly did to... Yeah. And I think we're in a curious time with comedy because I, I guess this is specifically around like political comedy like for me good comedy good satire is about kicking upwards it's about speaking truth to power and it's never about kicking downwards and mm. so like, i think this is sort of weird thing happening where lots of comedy conversations seem to be about censorship and free speech and like um comedians or comedy writers wanting to tell jokes that kick downwards and not face any criticism for that i guess the most the more most recent most specific example I can think of is like when uh, Lindy West and Jim Norton were on a show debating well having a conversation about Jim Norton felt that comics should be able to tell rape jokes if they want to and Lindy West was like well you're turning this into the free speech issue it's not and the whole thing about if you want to turn it into a free speech issue like 
if you want to write those jokes, that makes you a dick. And free speech dictates that I get to call you a dick if I want to. It seems like such a strange hill to die on, doesn't it? Everything that you can make jokes about, pretty much anything, but I want to make jokes about this. A a thing I think about a lot is, like, Jerry Seinfeld was interviewed once uh, about um, the lack of diversity in comedy, and he said, I don't care what you look like, funny is funny. And I think there's something really wrong with that statement because funny is funny to who? Mm. Like you watch comedians in cars getting coffee and there's a certain archetype of person who gets to be in that car getting that coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. Funny, sure, funny can be funny, but uh, funny is like Ted Cole's Twitter bio says we who. And that I think that's that's the perfect way to push back on that we who who's finding it funny why are they finding it funny why am i not finding it funny what is funny who dictates what is funny like humor is subjective like there isn't a you can't say funny is funny with the expectation that all jokes all funny jokes will be funny to everyone like my my friend and i can watch like the same episode of the big bang theory and he'll find it hilarious and i'll just be sitting there going don't get it don't know why this is funny. Back to criminals. Do you have any favourite like literary baddies? Uh, the Green Goblin. He's a pretty bad baddie from Spider-Man. And thinking, what is it about him that appeals to you, other than he's sort of wrestling with your, um, your well, hero? Can I say that about Spider-Man? A hero? <laughs> well, I mean, the Green Goblin is responsible for the, one of the most tragic moments in, the, in Spider-Man lore because he's responsible for the death of Gwen Stacy spoiler for like the 60s if you, <laughs> um, but also like he's basically like I'm dropping my Don Draper coffee mug with sad he <laughs> shattered my childhood now um, he like he works for like he's a big like corporate man who owns this huge corporate empire and yet that amount of power isn't enough for him and so that I think there's something very telling about a certain archetype of man that Norman Osborn aka the Green Goblin represents and it's the same with um, I don't know why this guy came came to me the uh, Dudley is it Dudley Smith in the like James Elroy's um, LA Quartet books uh, like he's played by James Cromwell in LA Confidential really. uh, on LA Confidential but he's he's a pretty good baddie yeah. Is that because he's sort of satisfying to hate or because he's so complex? There's a, a texture to his badness, do you think? I just I just think he's a really well-written bad dude in a book that's all about bad people. Um, like, he's the bad of the bad. You know, it, what's, I, I, I read all those books as a teenager and I really lapped them all up, but I think what, what Elroy seems to do is, uh, like, all his books seem to be um, good people do bad things for good reasons, uh, but Dudley Smith does bad things for bad reasons. Therefore, <laughs> he's a bad bad. Standout bad guy. Yeah. Do you, I do feel like we're in a time where um, crime um, and thrillers are really, really popular genre in literature, but also you know, podcasts. You know, true, true crime, mm. old murders. Why do you think we're so keen to know about these things? Yeah. Is there something about the time we're living that makes these extra popular, do you think? I, I don't know, but I, like everyone else, was obsessed with season one of Serial. You know, it was... It, it, it is... I think the the format of storytelling is really compelling. Like, the, the thriller format, you know, where you kind of you sort of drip-feed, 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 mm. cliffhanger, drip-feed, drip-feed. Drip, it's, it's brilliant. It keeps people coming back. Whether 
the story has that much like mileage in it anyway and that that's what I don't so I, I've just finished um, uh, my first YA novel which is a thriller about gentrification and it's, it's interesting I've never written a thriller before and I've set it in real time with four different narrators so it's it's very complex but that's fantastic is that going to be out this year or yeah it's out in year? June June I think um, and it was really interesting writing it because you kind of like I absorb a lot of thrillers and a lot of crime stuff but I don't necessarily know can see the mechanics of how you put it all together mm. so I kind of had to like learn the by numbers way of doing thrillers so I guess it was two different things that were new have you written any it was you say it's your first YA book yeah so it's a new audience and a new style yeah well, I, don't, you... I don't know if the style is different like I think I think what what the only difference in writing YA for me is the the age of the protagonist I think so when it was out on submission what was really interesting was like it's a gentrification thriller with a conspiracy theory at the heart of it I work with teenagers I'm a youth worker and so I know teenagers spend a lot of time with teenagers but a bunch of people in the publishing industry were like yeah I really get the landscape but like Mm, teenagers don't really like conspiracy theories and I was like have you ever met a teenager <laughs> have you ever been a teenager like we're thinking about getting some in for a focus group in six months we'll ask them then I was like when I was a teenager I was obsessed with the x-files you know like when you're a teenager um, wherever you grow up you, you like most teenagers tend to grow up with this feeling that there is something beyond their control that is making them do stuff that they don't want to have to do because like you're in in a certain institutions for so long like of course their life it's their life and their life is very small like of course teenagers lap up conspiracy theories i just thought i was bonkers but what they were what i think what those editors were saying was i don't like conspiracy theories and as a teenager if i was a teenager now with my now brain then i wouldn't like this and i think Nah, I work with teenagers. I, I know what I'm doing. You've got the source. I do think as well that... I might be hoist by my, my own petard oh. when that comes <laughs> out. And like, teenagers I... like, I loved everything but the conspiracy theory. <laughs> I don't know, you um, might not agree or you might feel differently. So I, my first job was at Bliss Magazine, the teen mag. Um, so I work with teenagers in a different way. And I loved that job very much, but... I feel as though teenagers have an incredibly keen sense of justice and what is right and what is wrong, get really, really angry about injustice and are really passionate about fighting that. Yeah, I think I think up until probably the age of 14, 15, most teenagers would make really good policemen mm. and women um, just because everything is everything's right and wrong everything is black and white like there's no there are no gray areas and it's only when you start to rebel and push back that you start to see the gray areas and that's when the punks are born and the anarchists and all the rest of it I don't know but my my kid at the moment she's like she's three and she would make an amazing police officer she she did the most she did the most sneaky uh, thing like like she, she she dropped, robbed a bank. Yeah, she robbed a bank, and I was really not sure she should have done that. No, I like I spilt some food on the floor, and I picked it up, and like she was like, mm, "Mommy won't be happy about that." And I was like, <laughs> "Don't worry about it. We just won't tell her. It's fine." I, I told my told my wife, and I was like, "Oh yeah, earlier on, our, our kid, I spilt something, and, I was, and our kid was like, oh, mommy won't be happy about that.'" And she was like, "Yeah, I spilt something the other day, and..." Um, she was like, oh yeah, daddy won't be happy about that. 
And it's like she's playing herself against each other, which is the ultimate police. Yes, faintly Orwellian. She's put us both in different. She's put us both in different interrogation rooms. (laughs) Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We'll be back to Nikesh shortly. This week, my Steal of the Week, a book where the cover price belies the fact that it's worth its weight in gold, is The Little Snake by A.L. Kennedy. I've raved about this book all over social media and to the lady in charge of weekend upgrades on the Virgin train leaving Wolverhampton because I was sobbing so hard I couldn't use the chip and pin. This is a fable partly inspired by The Little Prince about the joy and pain that love brings and the power of hope and believing in goodness. It reads like a prose poem, but Kennedy is such a verbal economist that it never becomes cloying or baroque. It is simply and starkly beautiful. It's a fairy story, especially for anyone who needs to believe in something good. It's out now, published by Canongate, and if you're a friend of mine, you may well be getting it in your stocking in a few weeks. Now back to Nikesh. Um, I would love to ask, because I think this is a question I'm aware that women get asked constantly and men rarely do, but you brought it up and I know we've we've touched on that, but you're saying about, I suppose, finding a routine and balancing the fact that you have a thousand different jobs from being, you know, a father and a youth worker and a novelist and would you call yourself an activist? Is that fair or would, would you rather not use that description for what you do in terms of, you know, widening participation in publishing? I'm definitely not an activist. Like, I've met and worked with proper activists and, like, their dedication to the cause far exceeds mine. Like, I've done some campaign work, but the thing that I find frustrating about that campaign work is all I'm asking in, in the publishing industry, so it's already quite niche, is for a basic level of respect and equality so that we can have this equal peri- uh, equal playing field um, from which we can have a meritocracy that everyone seems to believe is there. And that is a very basic ask, and so I don't think I'm doing anything special by making that ask. But then I do believe very strongly that 
a lot of the time we have to take things we can do and almost break it down and break it down. I was listening to a different podcast, The Guilty Feminist, which I think I can say I'm a, a big fan of, and um, there were activists who were fighting period poverty, and someone in the audience said, well, why this? Why, why not just focus on ending all poverty? And she was saying, well, obviously I'd like to. Who does not want that? But you have to, to take what you can do and yeah. what's around you. And then, you know, I think take the, the thing that's not... I mean, I don't think that what you do is, you know, small in any way, but it's perhaps... It's, it's specific, certainly, and let yeah. it sort of bloom outwards. I, I guess the thing is, I, would, I don't want people to forget that I'm a writer first and foremost mm. and anything that I'm doing I'd much rather be writing like I sometimes feel like that Taylor Swift song look what you made me do because I'm like I shouldn't have to be setting up an agency and doing this journal I the Gideon Grinch shouldn't even have to have existed in the first place but they did and they do and I did it because no one else was going to do it and I'd much rather have been writing and you know it is hard because like all of this campaign work takes me away from my kids and it takes me away from doing the thing that I love doing and like it it means that I say I don't ever want to do another diversity panel and yet I did a whole year and a half of effectively doing the diversity panel by talking about the good immigrants so much and you know I I just I just want to write I just want to write like books with the confidence of a mediocre Mm. white man like Jonathan Franzen you know and people people don't ask Jonathan Franzen like you will never write books like Jonathan Franzen because I will read them and I will laugh and cry and not fall asleep. <laughs> well, TBC. But, um, you know, no one asked Jonathan Franzen, like, how we can diversify publishing or um, how can I be a better white ally to people from, like, people of colour and all this sort of stuff. No or one asked how he juggles looking after his kids, or assuming he has any. how he juggles looking after his kids. And, like, so here, here's the thing about juggling writing and kids... Um, like when my second baby was born, sleep is obviously like obviously a big issue in any household with, well, with anyone really. Anyone with a mobile phone is going to have sleep problems. But you know, I guess specifically with kids, I was on a big novel deadline, and I knew that like in order for the rest of the house to like to be able to sleep, I needed to like step up because I don't have to do the days like. I get to go to work and I get to have like I get to have a shower because I'm going to work. I get to go to work and have adult conversations about things that um, aren't about who's dropped food on the floor. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I get to make decisions. I get to choose what I want for lunch. All these kinds of things, like, and that's a real privilege. And so, like, the least I can do is ensure that people at home have some time to sleep. And our baby was born in summer, so I basically spent the first two months of her life with her in a sling walking her around Bristol in the summer evenings um, so she would have a good, like, and that would send her into at least a four hour sleep and then I'd come home and I'd edit for two hours like standing up with my laptop perched on like a mantelpiece um, what are you going to say on your child? on my child sometimes on my child if I was tired um, it's how my child met uh, how my baby met Nana Cherry which which is uh, which is quite special. Can you tell us that story? Well, yeah. Uh, so I, I, but basically, there was a documentary about uh, Nana Cherry, and she was, she was at the watershed, and as part of my walk, I thought I might just swing by and see if I could look at Nana, see if I can look at Nana Cherry in the flesh. That would be pretty cool. And um, I came in, and like the cinema curator saw me and like brought Nana Cherry over to 
meet my baby. And then wow. Cheryl was like, oh my God, there's a baby here. Um, That's so cool. Did you maybe yeah. wake up for the occasion no, or no. you have to tell them that they slept through this momentous there's a, event? There's a photo of her and Nana Cherry and she's fast asleep. That's how I balanced it. So having the two hours of editing time, I had to pay that, trade that off with like doing the walk so I could ensure that the, my baby was asleep. And that was like the least you can do. Like it's not even doing that much, you know. I think it sounds quite soothing, have a lovely, snuggly warm baby and then do it. But then I, I hate editing and I find it horrible. Do you enjoy it? Would you, what's your favourite part of the, the writing process? I really like being edited or doing the editorial process. I think because traditionally, because I've ma- um, balanced writing with other stuff, um, I tend to do my first draft quickly and with caveats, so like I know that this bit needs work, and I know this bit's a bit weak, and this bit's a bit low wattage and needs ramping up and all the rest of put it. Put in 400 pages of sad. <laughs> yeah, put in 400 pages of sad. Just do the f- inciting, you know, sad mug bit, and then yeah, take the rest of it out. <laughs> so like, I'll do the first draft quite quickly, and then like the editing and like whittling it in, whitt- whittling, 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 uh, shaping. <laughs> whittling. Yes. Whittling, piddling. Uh, shaping it into something, that is that I like is the fun part for me. Like the first bit when you're like, oh, I've got to make them like I've got to get them from here to there, and along the way this needs to happen, and that's kind of almost unwieldy to write sometimes. And it's because I I struggle with that because I think oh but I have to come back and do this again, and I might hate it and might be terrible. Some days I think that I really would just like to write a load of words, put the words in a box have a check appear in another box not even you know having to go and like check your bank balance and see who's paid you you've just got it sort of magically comes and then not see anyone and just why check why not just like a counter above your desk oh like... that would be good if there was a magic bank where you could just see the money going in it wasn't telling you how much was going out <laughs> i think i could deal with that but the sort of you just put some paper in get some paper out that system would suit me fine this, this may sound like quite self-loathing but I really need to hate the words I really need to hate it in order to make it better like the the moment I'm like this is great is the moment I need to give it to someone else I mean that makes me think you will never ever be friends and I mean that as a great compliment (laughs) so we're going to get in so much trouble aren't Mm. we but it's not so much that it's more like I know like I'm like I'm using these books and essays to kind of wrestle with things that are really troubling me so like each book needs to be either markedly different from the one that came before it or like a step up for me so between meat space and this book that's coming out in april there is another book it's called wild loaves i wrote it very quickly after i finished meatloaf uh, meat space (laughs) (laughs) meat space in like i can't remember when i finished it maybe 2013 uh, so I wrote it very, very quickly. It didn't take me very long. It's a, it's like a nice light rom-com about two people, two people who get ditched by their friends at a music festival, and then they spend, they through circumstances, end up to like doing the festival together and falling in love. And it's like, it's fine, but it's quite light. And I wasn't really wrestling with anything with it. And so I was like, I don't need this to be a thing that comes out. So I stuck it in a drawer and I was like, right, I'm going to write the thing that I've been trying to write since I was 19 and I'm going to try and get it right. And I managed to get it wrong again. And then I was listening to a podcast interview with Mitch Hurwitz, who created Arrested Development. 
and he was talking about how most American sitcoms are based in this Commedia del Arte thing about the matriarch, the patriarch, the craftsman, and the cr- clown. So if you look at like Seinfeld, Seinfeld is your matriarch because everyone nests at his apartment. Elaine is your patriarch because she's like the career-minded, ambitious one. Kramer is always scheming, he's your craftsman and George is your clown and you put them all in one room and you give them a desire or a want and chaos ensues and that was the thing that I needed to listen to to make me go I know what this book needs to be so I'm really glad I stuck that other book in a drawer and I'm not I don't know I might revisit it when I need to fart something out maybe I don't know Um, (laughs) I think it sounds charming it is it is a fun book but like it was the book that I did instead of doing this one and like sometimes you need to listen to a podcast and hear someone say something really pretentious about Commedia dell'arte in, <laughs> in order for you to go huzzah I have it this is what's gonna, what, it, what it's going to be and the, the other thing that someone once told me was that a lot of sitcom plots are, are in order because sitcoms have this sort of big reset at the end of each episode they most of them they have a very clear want so like I guess in your the most obvious example is the catchphrase of Only Fools and Horses is this time next year we'll, we'll be millionaires. And so you know in each episode what, what the desire is. Mm. They want to be millionaires. And, and uh, that, you know, they will not get that yeah. until the very end when they do in and, Only Fools and Horses. And so each episode follows this, the, the plot structure of Cinderella. So, like, the characters have this clear want. They want to go to the ball. They want to be millionaires. Something stands in their way they can't go to the ball or they can't be millionaires and then they chase what they're looking for and they eventually get what they're looking for and then it turns out to be not what they expected and then reset. So like going back to what we were saying about comedy before, like these structures and these tropes and this sort of like ease of ways into characters was exactly what I needed to hear for the like this novel that's called like ambitious for me, but it's a, a, a novel about the human condition and why wouldn't I like exploit some very well-worn archetypes in order to examine the human condition they're they're archetypes for a reason yeah and I think it's really really comforting for any writer to hear that that you don't do it and it's done and sometimes it takes years and sometimes you don't find what you need immediately as you write it's you you think or as you say you hear a podcast yeah well I guess the classic example is um what was Ghost Set a Watchman became To Kill a Mockingbird because someone read Ghost Set a Watchman and they were like, actually, this one bit where Scout is a child is much more interesting than. So, like. Because it, cru- well, it would crush me coming from an editor. It's like that, those 20 pages you did, can the whole book be those and get rid yeah. of everything else? I love it. I specifically love this small bit. So, delete everything else and turn this, triple this small bit, and we'll be fine. I have sulked over <laughs> much, much, much less. I wanted to ask you um, about your worst reading habit. Is it um, borrowing books and never giving them back? Is it leaving books on trains? Is it doing that thing where you don't put a bookmark in, you just put them on the floor? Or using old junk for bookmarks? I don't lend people books anymore unless I know it's a spare copy, like... You know, when you work in publishing, you're lucky. Like sometimes you get doubles, and you like I don't mind giving those out. People don't like it when you dog ear pages. I dog ear pages. Oh, gee, is that when you bend them back so you know yeah. where you are? Sorry, world, <laughs> controversial. This is my confession. Um, why do you think people? 
get so upset about that because I can sort of see, you know, I guess we're all taught that we should be, be careful with our things, but I do think that with books more than anything else, it's a weird, almost um, fetishistic sense that they're, they're preciousness and that they're, you know, there's something sacred, which is lovely, but also really irritating. No, I can, I, that's, I can see that. I, th- I think my worst habit is I junk books really quickly. Like, I can tell within, like, 30 to 40 pages whether I'm going to like something or not. And I think that sometimes means that I don't always read out of my comfort zone as much as I should. And I should stay with books a bit longer. How much time do you think you spend reading? I'm sure it depends on, you know, you and what you're doing, but... I try and do half an hour a day, which I think for me with young kids and like my ridiculous to-do list is not I think that's awful. pretty laudable. Um, so one thing I noticed like with my sleep habits was I was sleeping really badly. And like you read all this stuff online about like having your phone in the same room. And um, when you've got a kid... Like and they 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 wake and so like we'd keep our phones in our room just so we could see what time it was and like in case it was a feed or like whether it was time to get up or what have you. Um, so I took all my note like all my notifications off my home screen on my phone, which was amazing. Um, so I like I when I want to check Twitter or my email, I will go into Twitter or my email. Um, but I tr- I'm trying to do a thing where half an hour before I go to bed, I don't look at my don't look at a screen because like apparently it, like it keeps you awake for a bit longer or it doesn't help you with REM so I try and do half an hour reading before I go to bed which I mean sometimes isn't very successful but we can try so do you ever reread books or do you feel as though there are just too many books to begin to do that I haven't done in years the the last book I reread Actually, no, that's not true. I am rereading a bunch of books at the moment for the Folio Prize. Uh, that are books that I read last, like, last, in the last year. Do you get the beautiful Folio editions? I hope so. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, so, like, a bunch of books that I really loved last year that are on that were submitted for the prize. I'm rereading them now with like a more judgmental eye, and seeing if like they match up. Um, so that's that's nice. I the the book I reread recently um A because it's brilliant and B because I was very close to um trying to get trying to work on an adaptation of it but it didn't quite work out was White Tears by Hari Kunzru and it's a brilliant book about the blues and cultural appropriation and hipsters um and I started to talk to like a Hollywood executive about um, adapting it and then like for various reasons it didn't quite work out but um, yeah rereading that was a real joy because like I was rereading it to kind of think about how I might adapt it but then because it's like a weird ghost story thriller you kind of tear through it quite quickly so like reading stuff where you're forced to slow down because you kind of need to read it for work or you need to read it for judging it is 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 rare but it's really delightful Nagesh you've been fantastic as a thank you for helping the book inspectors with their inquiries um, I will be issuing you with a book token I'd like to know what book you would be spending the token on I'll tell you what I really love um, Jamie McKelvey's and Kieran Gillen's The Wicked and the Divine and I'm a bit behind on my comic reading so I might get a volume 
the latest volume of the Wicked and Divine comics. Huge thanks to our guest Nikesh. His latest novel, The One Who Wrote Destiny, published by Atlantic Books, is available now. And you can also buy his first book for teenagers, Run Riot, published by Hodder Children's. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow book inspectors. You can find me on social media, at NotRollTheGirl on Twitter, and at TheDaisyB, that's B like the insect, on Instagram. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acars.com slash booked for more information about our guests and all of the books they talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. That's the letter Y, booked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next week for another literary peep show. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.